Well, <clears throat> uh, Professor Flood should be here, and uh, there's been a promise that uh, Gavin will come flying in shortly. But rather than delay the presentation, I'm going to be, pretend to be Gavin for just uh, about another 10 seconds. And I would like to welcome uh, Jan Westerhoff here. Thank you very much for coming and giving our Majewski lecture this autumn. Uh, as the Lecture in Religious Ethics mm -hmm. here in the, right. the Theology Faculty, Theology and Religion Faculty, as we now know. Mm -hmm. You will be speaking on what kind of philosophical theory is Madhyamaka, my favorite of all philosophical okay. theories. Thank, Thank you very much. I'm glad I've already had a fan. <laughs> so, right, well, first of all, apologies because I, I thought there would be some sort of straightforward audiovisual PowerPoint projecting equipment. Uh, however, that, that is not a big problem because I, A, made uh, um, the handout of all the slides, and B, I was sufficiently optimistic that I made sufficiently many, so I think everybody should have one because I've got 20, and I think we don't have 20. So um, if you each want to take two uh, copies and pass that round, then you should um, uh, see what I'm talking about, and um, uh, uh, then I will just direct you verbally from one slide to the next, so you can imagine what you would be seeing here if we actually had, to, had the projection facilities. Right, so what, what I want to talk about today is the um, question, what kind of philosophical theory Madhyamaka is. So um, I want to talk you through a couple of the possible interpretations of what kind of theory it is, and uh, then close by adding some hopefully interesting meta-theoretical reflections on what the Madhyamaka perspective on interpreting Madhyamaka should be. Okay, um, so first of all, let's look at slide one, interpreting Madhyamaka. Mm, I have the quote, well-known quote now from David Rick, um, who said in 1981, over the past half century, the doctrine of uh, the Madhyamaka school and in particular, that of Nagarjuna has been variously described as nihilism, monism, irrationalism, mythology, agnosticism, skepticism, criticism, dialectic, mysticism, acosmism, absolutism, relativism, nominalism, and linguistic analysis with therapeutic value. Okay, so that's, that's, these are some of the options, and uh, uh, you might be pleased to know that most of the options I'm going to talk about are actually not on that list, so it's a huge, it's, it's a huge range. Um, uh, for, for, for those of you who don't know what misology is, and I, I, I didn't know that, it's the, the distrust or hatred, hatred of reasoning. And um, acosmism, another philosophical theory I wasn't acquainted with, is the denial of the reality of the universe. Okay, so you've got those two terms down. Thanks very much. Um, right, well, it's, it's, it's quite a curious fact, actually, because if we look at other... Um, Schools of uh, Buddhist thought, like if we look at Abhidharma or if we look at um, uh, Yogacara, because there are some interpretative um, discrepancies. Uh, some people will, will wonder whether Yogacara is really idealism or whether we rather should see it as a, a form of phenomenology. And in fact, that is a minority of one who wants to interpret it in that way. Um, and Abhidharma, there are different interpretations about you know, what the dharmas really are. Some people say they're property instances. Hello, Gavin. Some people say uh, there are other kinds of fundamental phenomena. Um, but the, the, the um, range of options is relatively small, and there's, there's a, usually a general agreement of what these theories are doing, what these theories are for. Whereas in the case of Madhyamaka, it is... Uh, 
you know, it's all over the place. It's a vast spectrum. Many of those different interpretative options are mutually contradictory. So they cannot be right unless we think they're true contradictions. Um, so it's it's it really is a is, is a big mess. So um, and I'm so what I'm trying to do in this talk is first of all talk a little bit about why the oh yes uh, just those actually this is a different one just the first two of those yeah here I have two of those one two thank you very much yeah so it is actually the the, the various interpretive options on the table are um, are very diverse. Um, and what I'm trying to do is, first of all, sketch some interpretive options which I think are interesting, and then say something for why, uh, what are the systematic reasons I consider that to be, that there are so many different interpretations of what Madhyamaka is, and why that may not be a bad thing. Okay, so first of all, um, out of these very many interpretive options, I'm going to restrict myself um, to four, we're now on the slide, four ways of interpreting Madhyamaka. Um, the first uh, position I call conventionalism, the um, second, Indra's net, the third, semantic non-dualism, and the fourth is nihilism. And uh, I'll talk about each of, each of those in turn and tell you a little bit what the position is and also what the drawbacks are because they all have drawbacks. Okay, first of all, conventionalism is probably the, a... a um, um, a position you are all familiar with, of all heard about, if you ever looked at uh, books on Madhyamaka. Um, <coughs> it consists of the two twin theses of, on the one hand, uh, the Madhyamaka claim that there are no ultimately existent objects, and secondly, the claim that it does not deny conventional reality. Um, so how those two things go together is by... Um, saying that, well, if you want to interpret, it, interpret Madhyamaka claims, we have to get a clear idea of what the object of negation is, to use the Tibetan terminology. So if you want to um, find out what the theory of emptiness, of shunyata, is, we have to first of all know what empty things are empty of, so we have to know what the Madhyamaka rejects, and it's important that we don't reject too little, and that we don't reject too much. And what the object of negation is, at least according to Tibetan Gelug orthodoxy, um, is that what Madhyamaka denies is the falsely existent, truly established object, for example, a pot or a vase, that is negated. However, the conventionally established pot is left behind. That's fine. That's not negated by the Madhyamaka analysis. Um, Okay, so that doesn't tell you yet a lot about the theory, but the important point again at this stage is that we have a model of the two truths. We have um, the negation of existence in an absolute sense and an affirmation of the existence in the conventional sense. And this is a this is a very this conventionalist interpretation is a very popular one. It's one which you find in uh, certainly in Tsongkhapa, and you find it in the whole Tibetan tradition that uh, takes off from Tsongkhapa and. Um, and also find it in various contemporary Western writers on Madhyamaka, particularly Jay Garfield, uh, is a strong propo a proponent of that. Um, now, there are a couple of problems for this conventionalist interpretation, and two of those I've listed on the next slide, problems for conventionalism. Um, um, many of these problems were already discussed in the tradition 
of that um, interpretation, so it's not just something that contemporary scholars have suddenly realized. The first problem is the question why conventionally existent objects or conventionally existent parts or selves are not subject to all the unhealthy emotional attitudes that we think the theory of emptiness is supposed to rid us of. Right? So um, if we ask ourselves, okay, so why are we doing all these Madhyamika metaphysical theory of emptiness, well, ultimately it has a sociological point. It's supposed to help us to get rid of clinging or grasping, and of course once clinging and grasping goes away, then uh, <coughs> accumulation of karmic potential goes away, and then eventually we are going to be liberated in that way. So, um, now the question is, um, if we say that the theory of the... Uh, absence of self or absence of svabhava in things and the theory of, of the absence of svabhava in phenomena, if that works by basically removing the object of clinging or these unhelpful emotional attitudes, because if there's no really, really no objects, then we can't have an attachment to those attitudes. If it works that way, then we might ask ourselves, well, what keeps us from um, saying that, well, instead of being attached to ourself in any ultimately existent sense, we are just attached to the conventional self. And instead of thinking, well, I'm a text attached to my Rolex watch because it exists at a fundamental ontological level, I might still say, well, no, it, it only exists in a dependently arisen way, but still, it's mine. Right. Okay, so you think, if, if you have this distinction between the, between the conventional and the absolute, then there's really no traction to be gained here, because all that um, difficult stuff <coughs> that we think the theory of emptiness is going to rid us of is just coming back at the conventional level. Um, <coughs> and of course, the, well, the flip side of that problem is, and this is, this is something that uh, Paul Williams has, has been going on for a while, is that particularly in the, in the case of, of the emptiness of persons, if we s still say they're conventionally existence persons, we become to them, if we say there are no conventionally existent persons at all, then it's hard to make sense of something like the Bodhisattva ethics, because then we can't even distinguish between your pain and my pain, because not even at the level of transactional reality, there are no persons. So, uh, <coughs> Madhyamaka seems to be um, caught between a rock and a hard place here. So that's the first problem of, for conventionalism, that the conventionally existent objects still seem to create the same problems, in many ways, and the absolutely existent ones. And the second problem relating to this is that it risks turning the theory of emptiness, or rather the object of negation that the theory of emptiness is about, into a scholastic epic phenomenon. What, that, what I mean by that is that if we say, look, I mean, we don't, when we talk about the emptiness of the pot, we don't actually negate the pot, we just negate the truly established pot. That doesn't exist. Well, then you might say, well, I mean, who ever cared about truly existent established pots at all, apart from Tibetans in the debate courtyard, right? This is something, there's a problem, this is, this is manufactured, manufactured in order to fit the theory. It's not a problem that would in any way naturally arise when we think about these things. So, if we uh, read Madhyamaka in this conventionalist way, we might end up with a theory that is... A solution to a problem nobody cares about. And that's obviously bad because we think that the whole impetus between, behind the theory of emptiness is that it's something which should be 
um, <coughs> sociologically efficacious and not just something which we use in order to play debating games. So that's the second problem um, which made, might make you wonder about uh, whether we should really adopt the um, conventionalist interpretation. Okay, now <coughs> the second interpretation I want to talk about, um, Indra's net, we're now on, that's on the slide, it's called number two, Indra's net. Um, uh, so first of all, there's a little quote here for where the image of um, Indra's net comes from. It comes from the tradition of the Avatamsaka Sutra. And, uh, okay, so here's the quote. Far away in the heavenly abode of the great god Indra, there is a wonderful net which has been hung by some cunning artificer in such a way that it stretches out infinitely um, in all directions. In accordance with the extravagant tastes of deities, the artificer has hung a, a single gl glittering jewel in each eye of the net, and since the net itself is infinite in dimension, the jewels are infinite in number. If we now arbitrarily select one of these jewels for inspection and closely look at it, we will discover that in its polished surface they are reflected all the other jewels in the net, infinite in number. Okay, well, so the, the, the metaphorical picture we have here is that you have this, this array of jewels and every jewel uh, in the net reflects every other jewel in the net. Okay, um, what that is supposed to be a metaphor for is, of course, the notion of interdependence. So, you know, the next slide, interest net and interdependence. So with this, what this kind of interpretation of Madhyamaka is saying is, saying, look, what Madhyamaka is about is about refuting intrinsic existence, refuting svabhava, one way of interpreting svabhava, another way of, of, of interpreting svabhava might be calling it substance. So Madhyamaka refutes intrinsic existence and <coughs> Nagarjuna equates emptiness with dependent origination. It's a very key passage uh, in the Mula Madhyamaka Karika. Um, uh, he, he points out that um, uh, um, what, what is dependent origination, that very thing is called emptiness, and because that is a dependent origination, that is itself the middle way. Okay, so that, of course, then is stacked on top of a long exegetical tradition of Pratitya Samudbada, of dependent arising, um, going all the way back to the uh, Buddha Sutras, and then the, the philosophical mileage that is gotten out of that in, in this Indus Net interpretation is that Madhyamaka is basically a theory that says that the existence and the nature of anything depends on that of anything else. So it's like the reflection of the jewels in each other is the dependence of different objects on each other. Um, uh, <coughs> so why does that mean that there can't be any Svabhava? Well, Svabhava is something an object has if it could have it in a lonely state, right? If you isolate that object and take everything else away, you still end up with something that has that very quality. Um, now, if you have an interest net picture, um, that can't be the case because uh, everything is interdependent. So if you take one thing away um, uh, because all other things are reflected in it, it's still going to be there. So it's like you take one jewel out of the net, but because it's reflected in all the other jewels, it doesn't make any difference. Okay? So that is according to this theory, what the theory of emptiness is all about. It's about interdependence. Right, okay, well that, is, <laughs> that isn't really the, 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 the real thing either, as you can see on the next slide, problems for Indra's net. Um, 
Um, and this is primarily due to the fact that what we have now is a claim that Madhyamaka is a theory that promotes universal interdependence of all things, and that pretty much looks like proposing an ultimately true theory. So it looks as if we are saying, well, at the rock bottom, when, we, we, when we're finished with our philosophical analysis, what we have is a theory according to which um, everything is interdependent, um, and that is the ultimate truth. So that's what, what the universe is fundamentally like. And you think, well, that's okay, because what that means, according to the internet interpretation, is that everything is empty, and surely, according to Madhyamika, it's ultimately true that everything is empty. Well, now, what that doesn't sit well with is the Madhyamaka conception of the emptiness, of emptiness. Now, what that means is that the same considerations we should apply to the emptiness of persons or to the emptiness of phenomena is also something which we should apply to theories, and in particular we should apply to the theory of emptiness. Um, if um, none of the objects or the persons are fundamentally grounded in some level that is independent of everything else, in the same way you can't end up with an ultimately true theory um, uh, that doesn't require any further grounding, and the theory of Indresnet seems to be just such a theory. So it looks as if um, what, what the... Um, um, uh, theory of Indresnet is uh, misunderstanding is that it seems to think that the claim that um, uh, <coughs> uh, the, the, uh, the ultimate the ultimate interdependence of all things could be interpreted as a theory that is the f the, the final outcome of a philosophical analysis, whereas the uh, Madhyamaka claim of the emptiness of emptiness seems to deny that exactly uh, uh, such a thing is impossible. Okay, so that doesn't seem to be sitting very well with all of the claims that Madhyamakas make about Madhyamakas either, because they don't uh, have this conception of ultimate reality. So we probably should look for a different interpretation, and that gets us to number three, semantic non-dualism. Now, Semantic non-dualism is encapsulated by this, um, I think, somewhat paradoxical formula that the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. Um, so note, note the different, difference with the previous interpretation, the, the Indusnet interpretation would say the ultimate truth is that everything is interdependent. Now we saw there was a conflict of that with the theory of the emptiness of emptiness, so we come up with a better proposal, semantic non-dualism, that says the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. Well, that sounds paradoxical. Uh, fortunately, it isn't actually meant to be paradoxical because uh, <coughs> the two occurrences of the term ultimate truth mean different things in that sentence. We have ultimate truth one and ultimate truth two. Ultimate truth one just means the final true account of reality at the fundamental level. But ultimate truth two is the kind of truth you have to realize in order to get enlightened. So what the, the, the maxim of semantic non-dualism says is that the ultimate truth too, that is what you have to realize in order to get enlightened, is that there is no ultimate truth. One, that there is no final true account of reality at the fundamental level, as, for example, the Indresnet account would be. So 
that has then the curious consequence of collapsing the um, uh, Madhyamaka theory of the two truths into one, because at that, uh, on that theory there's only one truth, namely the conventional truth, and that is the appearance of the ultimate truth, but there isn't any. Certainly not in the sense of a final true account of reality. So this theory is supposed to encapsulate the Madhyamaka doctrine of the emptiness of emptiness. Um, it is also uh, developed to make a soteriological point because um, um, the idea is that uh, any theory that presupposes that there could be something like ultimate truth one, namely the final true account of reality at the fundamental level, reintroduces a kind of subtle object of clinging which can uh, generate all these emotional attitudes of grasping which you could also uh, generate to other objects with Svabhava. And for that reason, um, it, tri it tries to get rid of clinging at the most fundamental level, namely at the clinging at a true theory. Okay. Um, right. Uh, that sounds better, I think, than the previous two theories. Still, however, uh, you might think this is, it's, it's not uh, without difficulties, you know, on the slide, problems for semantic non-dualism. Um, and the, the, the main question that arises here is how we can make sense of conventions without anything the conventions are grounded in. Because uh, as I just mentioned, we collapse the two truths into one. There's no ultimate truth. There's only the conventional truth. But then, <coughs> um, on a usual understanding of the true truth. So, for example, an understanding that would derive from the Abhidharma, we have the, the, the ultimate truth as, at the foundational level. You know, this is where the, where the dharmas live. And then we have the conventional truth of everyday reality, where we've got medium-sized dry goods. And the conventional truth is grounded by the ultimate truth. Right? The conventional truth is there because the ultimate truth is there. Um, uh, what you realize when you get enlightened um, uh, according to the Abhidharma model, is that you don't have to make this kind of superimposition of the conventional truth on the ultimate truth anymore, and you just end up with the, with the ultimate truth. So ending up just with the ultimate truth, that's okay. But it's not even clear what we mean by just ending up with the conventional truth, because we then somehow seem to hang in the air without anything grounding it. So what is basically an issue here, and I, I think this is very much an, an open question, is the coherence of non-foundationalism, whether we could have a, an account of uh, theories that don't uh, uh, presuppose any kind of grounding um, within, uh, um, within an ultimate reality. Um, one uh, um, analogy that, that the, the main defender of uh, the semantic non-dualism, Mark Sidritz, has proposed some time ago, uh, is, is an economic example where you might want to say, okay, well, the, fun, the, 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 the standard picture of ultimate reality, grounding conventional reality, is the economic picture of the gold standard, where you say, well, my currency has value because it's cashable in gold, and the gold is the ultimate reality that guarantees the value of the currency because you can always get it, uh, exchange your currency for gold, and the gold is intrinsically valuable. Of course, that, that, that's all a myth. First of all, gold isn't, intri isn't intrinsically more valuable than anything else. Secondly, as we know, you can run economies without a gold standard, and we have to do that, done that for quite a while. So in that case, 
um, you have the you know they have the conventional reality of value without anything intrinsically valuable grounding it, and that is what Sidrid suggests is a model in which we can think of um, conventional reality without an ultimate reality grounding it. Okay, well, there are various issues that you, we could raise at this stage about the coherence of that approach. I'm going to move um, on now, but I mean, at least that would be one possibility to explore. Right. Now, you'll be relieved to hear we come to the final um, possibility of interpreting Madhyamaka, number four, and that is the nihilist interpretation. We're now on the slide, it says four, number four, nihilism. Okay, um, <coughs> I'll read you a, um, a short extra, extract from one of the main modern defenders of the nihilist interpretation. Um, here, here it goes. The Madhyamakas did not deny that it is true in some sense to say that things appear to be such and such. They simply denied that one could infer, infer from this that there are such things as appearances, vinyapti. Expressions like sense datum, appearance, vinyapti, and so on, are like the expression, the rising of the sun. S such expressions are useful and harmless if understood for what they are. Just as the sun doesn't really rise and set, so the appearance of an illusory pink elephant has no more reality than the supposed pink elephant that the hallucinator imputes to the external world. Okay, so what, 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 what is he saying here? Well, let's go to the next slide. Madhyamaka is nihilism. Well, um, okay, he makes the, Wood makes the following claims here. First of all, according to Madhyamaka, there are no substantially real things. This is, this is fairly standard, uh, um, standard point. This is just saying that there are no things existence by Svabhava, right? But he then makes the further point and says that the Madhyamakas say there are no appearances either. Right? There no, there's, there's no ground of the appearances, and there are no appearances, which, of course, leads, it, leads us to the position that there's no, nothing at all. And that is, the, that, that is the Madhyamaka position, that there's nothing at all. Um, no, no fundamental objects, no appearances. Now, you can <coughs> find a variety of, a surprising variety of, actually, textual sources that at least seem to back that up. You can have fairly clear claims, for example, uh, Samadhi Rajas Sutra here on the handout, all is indeed non-existent, nothing is existent. You, you feel, uh, find similar, similar uh, quotes in, in various versions of the, of the Paramita Sutras. Um, also, Chandrakirti in his commentary seems to get fairly close to a position uh, like that sometimes. For example, in his commentary on uh, 2610, where he's argued that there isn't anything that appears to a fully enlightened being. So it's not like the, the, the Abhidharma model I've just uh, been describing. So if you see ultimate reality in the right way, then you see you know, the different momentary dharmas and how they arise and cease, and that's, that's how the world is really like. No, Chandrakirti says, for the Arya, for the, for the enlightened being, when, when, when he sees the world as it really is, he doesn't see anything at all. And that seems to be saying that, well, at the fundamental level, there isn't anything, because there's nothing to see there. So that, that is a fairly, fairly extreme way of um, reading Madhyamaka. And in, in fact, you might think that there are so many problems with that that you wonder why anybody would uh, entertain that at all. So here are three, that's next slide, problems for the nihilist interpretation. Um, first problem is that it seems to be a straightforwardly absurd position because nihilism says that there isn't anything at all. 
So if that's true, then presumably there is the truth that nihilism is true and there isn't anything at all. So there seems to be at least something, namely the truth of nihilism. So if nihilism is true, then there is nothing. If there is nothing, there is something, and that's a contradiction. Okay. So that doesn't doesn't get us very far. Um, secondly, again, <coughs> we we have the vexed problem of uh, the emptiness of emptiness. If it's ultimately true that there is nothing at all, we have the same position as the Indusnet guy, only that. that um, uh, the Indusnet defender wants to say everything is independent, the nihilists want to say ultimately there's nothing at all. But we've just seen Madhyamaka doesn't really, isn't really compatible with any claims about what is there ultimately. And uh, thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Madhyamaka is the middle way, right? the middle way between the two extremes of eternalism and annihilationism or nihilism. So it's, it's, it's a little bit disingenuous if we then say, well, in fact, the middle way is, you know, is, is one of the two extremes. So that pretty much seems to wipe out the nihilist interpretation uh, straight away. However, please turn over to the next slide, Madhyamaka is nihilism supporting evidence. Um, it is surprising how widespread that uh, interpretation actually is and was. So we find various non-Buddhist authors characterizing Madhyamaka as nihilism throughout the, throughout the entire histories of, of, of non-Buddhists debating with Buddhists. Uh, interestingly enough, we also find various Buddhist authors who describe um, Madhyamaka as nihilists. So certainly the Yogacarins, Asanga and uh, Asanga in a lot of detail, but Masabandu a little bit more briefly says, well, I mean, the, the only way you can make sense of conventions being grounded in nothing is by saying that the conventions don't exist either, so there's nothing at all. And um, interestingly, we also find Madhyamikas describing other Madhyamikas as nihilists. So uh, we find Bhavi ba- ba- Veka calling Chandrakirti a nihilist, or the uh, uh, at least the, 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 the Prasangika, what, what the Tibetans now then later called the Prasangika interpretation, uh, regarding that as nihilism. Uh, it, it doesn't stop there. Modern Buddhologists uh, um, have been going on uh, about the nihilist characterization of Madhyamikas really since the birth of, of Western Buddhology. It starts with De La Vallée-Pesant and goes on, Valiser, Paul Williams, Burton, Wood, Klaus Oetke, and so on and so on. Um, so, <laughs> the point I, I'm making here is that it's, uh, um, these cannot be attributed to occasional unsympathetic misunderstanding. It is not, uh, we can't just say, well, okay, so Shankara didn't really understand what Madhyamika was all about and thought it was a kind of nihilism, or Asanga didn't really get what Nagarjuna wanted and thought it was a kind of nihilism. It's a little bit too persistent for that. Um, <laughs> okay, so, um, uh, so in the, on, on the next slide, where I say nihilism, two premises, I, I just want to briefly look at, at an argument for how the, this nihilist conclusion could come about on Madhyamaka premises. Uh, basically, what um, um, is the case here is that, according to this interpretation, the, the Madhyamaka makes two claims. They make an eliminativist claim, and they make a non-foundationalist claim. So the eliminativist claim is that if you have a hierarchy of levels of existence, uh, where, for example, you say at the, at the top level you have the, the spatial temporal extended objects, and then you break those, those down into molecules, and break those down into atoms, and you break those down further, 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 until you uh, reach the dharmas, then it, it, the eliminativist will say that 
every, every time you go down a step, you can say that the step on the top doesn't exist. Uh -huh. So if you, um, if you break down medium-sized dry goods into molecules, what you then say is, well, in fact, there are no medium-sized dry goods. There are only the molecules in, in, a, uh, uh, in a certain spatial arrangement. And then if you, if you then break down the molecules into the atoms, then you say, well, really, there are no molecules. There are only the atoms arranged in a certain way. Right? And then <coughs> the Madhyamika couples that eliminativism with a non-foundationalist premise saying that there is no bottom level. Right? So you go down, 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 down. Every time you go one step down, you say, well, the, the upper level doesn't exist. And then you keep going indefinitely. And then what you end up with is a theory according to which there's nothing at all. Right? So, so the, 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 the take-home message there is that every level can be eliminated in favor of the one directly below, and no level is fundamental. Okay. Um, so, um, in that case... Um, um, we might now ask ourselves, okay, so uh, um, is, can we still leave this standing as a possible interpretation of um, Madhyamaka? And I would argue that we can, despite the manifestly absurd features I've described earlier on. Um, uh, so... Um, uh, um, First of all, why would we say it's not an extreme view? Uh, well, it is. Um, uh, it's, uh, I mean, the only way, way we could say it's not an extreme view is if we find, find a view that's even more extreme than that, right? So, if we um, uh, say we have this kind of descending level of appearances, and every time we, we go one step down, the, the top level disappears. It's, of course, the, the, the case that when we are at, uh, before we you know, have reduced one level to the level below, there's still the appearance of that higher level, even though it doesn't exist, it's an illusory appearance. So, um, if we had an even more, more extreme position, and that would really be inconsistent, saying that there is not even that illusory appearance, then we could find something which is, so to speak, even to the left of the, of the nihilist interpretation of Madhyamaka. Okay. Um, so, but more importantly, and more importantly for the tradition, why, why the Madhyamaka say we are not nihilists is because, I mean, they're not so much uh, concerned about ontology, they are concerned about the preservation of causal efficacy, right? They want to say, okay, so if you, if you are a nihilist of that nature and say that nothing exists, then what about karma, right? Can't you just you know, go and do whatever you want because, uh, because nothing exists, uh, there's no karma, there's no karmic retribution, so you know, just, just go along and be merry. Uh, well, that is... <coughs> Um, that is not the case because as long as you um, uh, as long as you are allowed to postulate some level of appearances, you also can postulate regularities amongst the appearances. In particular, you can have causal regularities amongst those. And to that extent, uh, it does not invalidate the law of karma, and it also doesn't invalidate ethics. Um, so that was actually, uh, this kind of criticism was already raised, and this defense of nihilism was already raised in the uh, Tibetan tradition. So I just want to read you know, a, a brief as uh, extract from, a, from a, a Tibetan work from the 1940s by, by a Tibetan scholar called Gendon Chöpel, um, a fairly, fairly non-orthodox scholar, I would say, but uh, nevertheless. So um, he has some interesting things to say on this problem. So here's what he says. Um, 
And this is defending the nihilist interpretation against uh, uh, the kind of uh, difficulties I've just outlined. So he says, some fear that if pots and pillars are refuted by reasoning, it will create nihilism, the view that nothing exists. This is a pointless worry. How is it possible that the nihilistic view that this pot that he sees in front of him is utterly non-existent will be produced in an ordinary human being? And even if such an idea were produced, because he knows explicitly that the pot is something to be seen and something to be touched, um, the thought is spontaneously produced that this pot is something that appears to me. However, it does not exist at all in the way in which it appears. Such a thought in the Madhyamaka view of the, uh, is in the Madhyamaka view the composite of appearance and emptiness, which understands that all the things appear, they do not exist at all in the way that they appear. How can this be nihilism? In brief, when one thinks that a pot is utterly non-existent and sees it directly with the eyes, the illusion-like awareness is produced automatically. Thus, what danger is there of falling into nihilism? Thus, I would say, when one decides that it does not exist with one's own mind and sees that it exists with one's own eyes, even without being taught by the yellow hat abbot, so that's the other geloks, what can arise other than the awareness of illusion? Without asserting that conventions are validly established, how is it that you do not lack confidence, independent origination? Now comes the important point. As long as these appearances of earth, stones, mountains, rocks, and so on do not vanish, it is pointless to assume that appearances such as the three jewels, cause and effect, and dependent origination also vanish. So, what he's saying here is that basically, even if you use all that Malyamka reasoning in order to get to the nihilist conclusion that there's nothing at all, you're still going to have the appearance of all that stuff around you. So, it would be very surprising if you, you know, worked through all the Malyamka arguments and suddenly the world vanished around you, right? It would be very, very surprising if any argument had that effect. So, in fact, you work through the arguments, you realize that it's true that nothing exists, and still everything appears around you, right? Uh, so, Gendon Chippel then argues that, well, th that's enough, because you can still say that within the appearances there are the three jewels, and cause dependent origination and causation and so on, and that's enough for the Buddhist path. So you don't have to assume that they exist in any way in a grounded manner. Okay, <coughs> so... Let's uh, move on and get to the final section. Uh, I'm now on the slide, what is the right way of interpreting Madhyamaka? So, the question now is, how do we decide between the plethora of interpretations of Madhyamaka available? I've described four to you, conventionalism, Indrasnet, semantic non-dualism, and nihilism, and, of course, I mentioned in the quote by David Roig, uh, a variety of other ones at the beginning. So, which one is the right one? Well, perhaps the question is not rightly put here, because if we think that Madhyamaka is supposed to work like a medicine getting rid of a wrong view, and this is an analogy you f frequently find in Madhyamaka writers, then the question of rightness may have to be replaced by the question of efficacy. So, I don't know which way of interpreting Madhyamaka is right, but which way of interpreting Madhyamaka is efficacious in getting you liberated. Um, okay, so <coughs> please turn over the middle way interpretation of the middle way. Right, well, it is fairly, um, fairly common accepted um, that there is no master argument for emptiness. What I mean by that is that when you look at Madhyamaka um, um, texts, you'll find a variety of arguments that Madhyamaka writers use in order to argue that everything is empty. And you would think, well, that is kind of curious, because um, uh, either they think that um, uh, one of these arguments is convincing, 
then, you know, well, then why produce other ones? Or they think that none is convincing, then why produce more? Why produce any of them, at least? Um, so there must be another explication behind that. And I think the, the, or the, 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 the interpretation is that um, the, the Madhyamika arguments are directed at refuting the wrong superposition of Svabhava. So you have to match the argument to the variety of Svabhava-like beliefs that you are encountering. So uh, there can't be, can't be no master argument of um, um, uh, uh, for Madhyamika against Svabhava in the same way in which there can't be you know, the universal vaccine that vac vaccinates you against all illnesses simultaneously because the vaccine has to respond to um, the pathogen. Yeah? In the same way, the Madhyamika argument has to refute the theory that generates the belief about Svabhava and like a virus that mutates right throughout, so throughout intellectual history, you know, this comes back in various forms, and in the same way, the Madhyamika's argument argument changed, even though the 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 the, the, <coughs> the basic theory doesn't change. Okay, so that is uncontroversial um, that the arguments uh, of Madhyamika are, or the form of the arguments are opponent-dependent. Now, what I want to argue is that not just the arguments, but also the interpretations of Madhyamaka are opponent-dependent. Right? Now, <coughs> I mean, one, one thing that is also fairly uncontroversial, I think, is that when explaining Madhyamaka theories, you are frequently um, uh, putting different weight on uh, the conventional truth and the ultimate truth within that interpretation. So... Um, I mean, there are certain, certain interpretations of Madhyamika that stress the aspect that you know everything is false uh, that we see. Um, we, we mistakenly interpret, uh, 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 superimpose all that Svabhava stuff on the world. There's nothing like that at all. So we're radically mistaken about what the world is like. But stressing the, the 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 absolute truth. Or you might find interpretation, particularly the conventionalist interpretation, is a clear example of that. That says, well, no, in fact, you have reliable conventions. This is why you can interact in the world. This is when I say, this is because why, if I say something, you understand me because we have shared network of convention. That stuff is reliable. If you tell, if I tell you that's the door, you'll find the door. So things work like that. So there is a reliable convention of reality. So we adjust the, the interpretation according to purpose. Now. I want to claim that interpretations of Madhyamaka have to be adjusted in accordance with the position they argue against as well. Okay? And now we come to <coughs> the illustration of that point in that final diagram on that final slide, um, where I have uh, uh, listed some interpretations and their opponents. Um, so what the opponent is in each case, however, is not... Um, a kind of Svabhava theory, but, um, oh, at least in most cases it isn't, but a specific um, uh, way in which Madhyamika could be misinterpreted. So, um, <coughs> so we rem remi remind ourselves of the semantic non-dualist interpretation. It says, okay, there's only the conventional truth. Um, well, this is a reading you might want to stress if you are arguing with somebody who thinks that Madhyamika is basically like Vedanta. You say, okay, well, um, there is the conventional truth, and there's the ultimate truth, and the ultimate truth is inexpressible, we can't say anything about that, um, and we, we need one way of getting from one to the other. Then you would wheel in the 
that, uh, the, the semantic non-dualist interpretation and say, well, actually, the Madhyamika understanding of ultimate truth isn't like that at all. Um, uh, secondly, the conventionalist um, interpretation would be something which uh, you use against somebody who regards the uh, Madhyamaka arguments as saying that because all conventions are empty, any convention is as good as any other one, and for that reason anything goes. So it doesn't really matter what kind of convention we use, uh, because they're all empty, um, then you might want to say, well, despite the fact that no convention is grounded in um, anything like Svobhava, that doesn't mean that we can still, uh, still can't be able to rate conventions according to their differing quality. I mean, this is, <coughs> this is a claim which the, the um, Bhavi Bhav Veka, what the Tibetans later call the Svatantika school, is very keen on this, saying, okay, well, there's, uh, um, there are various accounts of the world, some work better than others, even though none is best in terms of... Uh, uh, being in accordance with Svabhava. Um Thirdly, the Indusnet account, <coughs> um, that would be some, something uh, you might use in response to a theory that says, well, um, in fact, Madhyamaka doesn't, do, doesn't, doesn't present any uh, metaphysical account. It is uh, a pure rejection of any metaphysical theorizing. Uh, it doesn't want to make any positive claims. And you might want to say, well, I mean, in fact, there are these positive claims that a certain thesis Madhyamika makes, and uh, interdependence is one of them. Um, um, finally, um, uh, the nihilist interpretation is, I think, um, uh, not just interesting just for um, historical reasons, but I think it's also interesting to consider it if we want to study Madhyamika not merely as a historical enterprise, but also as a contribution to a live philosophical discussion. Um, because it, uh, it seems to be that in today's global philosophical arena, um, the Madhyamika's chief opponent is the naturalistic realist. So somebody who believes that the greatest part of the world is concept independent, that um, there is truth, that is correspondence between mental representation and objective facts out there, an objectively structured world, that there is a fundamental ground for all existence, and that the set of truth that... Um, embody the most fundamental facts about the world, cover all of these existence. So, in order to um, argue against a position like that, um, it's important for the Madhyamika to stress not the conventional aspect uh, of his theory, so the extent to which conventions works, but um, to show how the... Um, uh, interpret uh, interpretation of the world in terms of Svabhava that he rejects is precisely the one implied by such assumptions rather than a position held only by carefully constructed um, fictional straw men. So that's the, that is the, 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 the point I was, I was mentioning earlier about the, um, the um, Gilok interpretation where you might want to say, look, um, uh, if you interpret Madhyamaka in that way, then it's not clear why it's an interesting theory because it doesn't seem to engage with anything which we regard as theoretically important, who cares about truly established pots, right? But if you um, try to connect the truly established pot with the kind of pot that a naturalist realist believes in, then you get something that has philosophically a lot more traction. Okay, so that would be one uh, uh, selling point of the nihilist interpretation. Okay, so now wrapping it all up, so my, my take-home message is then that the middle-way interpretation of the middle-way 
um, uh, tells you that there is actually no necessity, and in fact it's not even a good thing, to um, believe that there is one final interpretation of what Madhyamaka means. However, there is, of course, a certain core meaning to Madhyamaka texts, namely the theory of universal emptiness, and the emptiness of emptiness itself, and then there are various ways of spelling that out in response to um, alternative readings of Madhyamaka and alternative readings of the opposing position to Madhyamaka. So, um, in the same way as the arguments have to change according to the uh, form of the theory of Svabhava that Madhyamaka is opposing, the interpretations of Madhyamaka have to change in the same way. And that's really all I want to say. Thank you. Oh, right. Okay, well, are you can... I think, yeah. Okay, are you still Gavin? Or? Yeah, apparently I'm still Gavin. Gavin's okay. on me. So okay. It's a mix of oh, right. Okay, so that is... Uh, um, are you off? I see you soon. Right. Okay, right. Uh, I think you were the first then, right? Yeah? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for that. It's very interesting. Um, I just wondered whether in the talk of Majamaka, um, like, you seem to be emphasizing a kind of nihilistic aspect of Majamaka, mm-hmm. um, whether in this talk we are somehow missing perhaps the processual dimension to adopt the So, so which, which dimension? Processual. Oh, the process, right? The okay. notion that reality is somehow made of processes. Yeah. And dependent origination is a processual mm-hmm. Theory, mm-hmm. and um, hence emptiness is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, And in fact, Majamika is, is, is a teaching which means it's um, made up of sentences with a beginning and an end. Mm-hmm. It's also a process. So it seems to me that we don't need necessarily to deny that reality is made of processes and mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. shift from one state to another. And that mm-hmm. seems to me quite. It's, it's not nihilistic, but neither is it materialist. Mm-hmm. I, wonder if, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the, I, I think the whole, um, the whole um, the, say, materialist, non-materialist distinction is, is not very helpful when applied to Madhyamaka, because Madhyamaka would want to reject the fundamental premise that reality is in any way fundamentally at all, so whether it's, it's you know, fundamentally mental or fundamentally material. Uh, but, I mean, to the, coming to the point you, you, you raised there, um, well, that goes. I mean, that basically reduces to the question whether we, whether the the Madhyamaka can have um, and defend a theory of what conventional reality is like that is not identical with the uh, you know how the world appears to us. Yeah? And, and this is a, a this is a big. Um, uh, topic of debate between Chandrakiti and Bhaviveka, where, where Chandrakiti says, well, no, Madhyamakas don't analyze. We, 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 uh, the conventional world is just you know, what, the, what the cowherds believe. So it's just a world of appearances, and there's no point in analyzing that any further. Whereas Bhaviveka says, no, we can actually come up with philosophical theories of how conventional works and how various, various elements of the world stick together. Um, and we can realize that there are better theories than the ones we currently have. Yeah? And so that your, your point would be in saying that, okay, well, the, the, the Madhyamika could then claim that, say, a process philosophy or, or, or something like that based on the notion of the momentariness, I assume, um, uh, works better for certain purposes within conventional reality than other theories do, and therefore they can endorse that. Yeah? I, I think you can, you can do that, but 
Probably not if you're a Prasangika. <laughs> so it, it, de it depends really on what, 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 kind of, uh, what, what kind of Madhyamaka you're su subscribing to. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if, if the, the notion of the emptiness of emptiness is, is, is responding to the, uh, the Yogacara idealism at all. Mm -hmm. uh, because the, it's, it's, um, Yogacara idea, that would be, I suppose that would be your first box here. That would be the semantic non dualism would respond directly against the uh, if you, if you if you if you read yeah if you read Yogacara as a as, as a theory which where um, the um, um, the dependent nature is the ultimately real um, then you then you can you can get this kind of illusion reality distinction yeah well you have to take into account that of course this, the talk of the emptiness of emptiness is um, we have to distinguish first of all between the phrase and the, the interpretation that's given to it right so that the phrase is early. But the question whether how, how that is spelled out is, of course, then you know uh, 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 developed within Madhyamaka literature. So um, uh, whether it was developed precisely as a response to an or Yogacara opponent, I, I don't know whether we can find precise evidence for that. I mean, what what is I think what is clear though is that uh, what it is denying is that we could say that we come up with some sort of uh, um, uh, theory of the world that, that incorporates the notion of emptiness either in the Yogacara way or in saying that uh, you know, everything, is everything depends on everything else. Um, and then we could then say, well, this is, the, this is how the world works at the fundamental level. Yeah? Because Madhyamika also wants to reduce the, the svabhavaness of the ultimate theory, not just the svabhavaness of all the relative theories. So I think this is the, that's the philosophical motivation for that idea. Oh, please, first you and then you. Yeah, yeah, yeah you. you first. First. Okay. I think that was much too neat, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was kind of overdone, but it was very good. But what I wanted just to check was, you had a really good uh, definition of a philosophical theory as a philosophical outcome of an analytical process, perfectly yeah. sensible definition. Yeah. So, according to you, what we've got is Madhyamaka is not a philosophical theory in that sense at all. Because what where you ended up is it's a kind of multi-dimensional, flexible manual, um, a guidebook or a source book for arguing against uh, a variety of opponents mm -hmm. who've misunderstood Swabhava. Yeah. So, in that sense, it's not a philosophical theory from where you started from. That's, is, that, is that what you meant to say? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the, 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 the metaphor of the, of the medicine or the purgative, which the Madhyamakas themselves use, I think is, is, is a very good one. So it's supposed to fulfill a certain purpose within, not, just, of, not within your body, but within your mind. Uh, and w w once it has fulfilled that purpose, you want to let go of it, and you're able to sort of keep it in your bowels. Um, and that's what it is for. So... Um, I, I think if we interpret, if our conception of philosophical theory is wide enough to cover that, and I, I certainly Yours think, isn't. well, the ones I've mentioned here, though, okay. right? But yeah. I, I, think, I think it's certainly the case that you find um, uh, um, precedents for understandings of philosophy like that. Also, in the Western world, for example, you know, Peronian skepticism, say, they would have, have a similar conception. So if you, if, if you say that, you know, Peronian skeptics, skeptics are philosophers or have a philosophical position, then the Madhyamakas can have one too. Okay.
please, uh, could you elaborate more on, on your position on this uh, semantic non-dualism? Okay. Yeah. Do, do, I mean, do you do you believe or do you think that philosophical to to have conventions, we need to to ground it them somewhere or somehow, yeah. or yeah. do you think that was it possible? Well, um, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I think um, uh, I mean this is a I mean this whole issue of. Uh, uh, independent of whether <coughs> semantic non-dualism is a good way of reading Madhyamaka, this whole question of foundationalism and non-foundationalism is, is, is a very live one con in contemporary philosophy, and I, I, I don't think that any, any kind of consensus has been reached. What, I've, uh, what, what, what seems to be certainly the case is that um, uh, until quite recently, recently uh, people were fairly convinced in saying that the non-foundationalist non conception leads to an inconsistency somewhere. So if you assume that it's, it go, I mean, it, that it's conventions all the way down, you can derive a contradiction from that. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, nobody really has been able to demonstrate where that contradiction would be coming from. So the, the, the position seems to be consistent, and in fact, I mean, in fact, it's demonstrably consistent because you can develop models that show that it, you, you can't derive a contradiction from that. I mean, that in itself isn't yet an argument for the position because there's lots of stuff that's consistent but not true. Yeah? Um, but, I mean, it, I think we are certainly at the stage where we can now say, well, uh, non-foundationalism is a live option in insofar as it's not internally contradictory. Yeah? And then the question is really, the, the, the proof is, is really in the eating, that you say, okay, well, you use that non-foundationalist model. Is it useful in order to ta tackle philosophical problems? Is it useful to understand Madhyamaka? Yeah? Um, and, and, and to that extent, I think the, the, the non-dualist, uh, 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 semantic non-dualist interpretation has a lot of mileage in it, insofar it is, as it is not intrinsically problematic. Oh. Yes? Uh, can I ask a question about the problem for interestness? So you said uh, the Madhyamkas would claim that universal interdependence is an ultimately true theory of mm -hmm. this interpretation, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't know whether it's, they would definitely would commit to that because if you transfer this, this sentence, you can, you can um, phrase it in this way, like the, the truth of universal independence is ultimately existence. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't see why that should be, should be a problem. Uh, I, I don't know why they should commit to that because... So who's they? Madhyamakas. Uh, right. Interpreted as Indrasnet. Mm -hmm. So... Because you, you say that uh, in this interpretation, the only thing that's denied is something that's independently existent. Mm -hmm. So everything is independently existent. Mm -hmm. So um, if you translate this sentence to be the truth of universal independence is ultimately existent, mm -hmm. it's definitely not true because the truth is definitely dependent on the mind. Without mind, there's no truth. Mm -hmm. And without kind of thing, this truth is right, there's no truth. So mm -hmm. truth doesn't have to be ultimately existent. Right, well, I mean, what you... Um Okay, so basically, you, you, you take the interdependence of everything, right? Yeah. And uh, then, then you get a kind of network of everything that depends on everything else, right? Yeah. And then, you, then the question becomes, okay, what's the status of that network? Yeah? And then you think, well, that's all depends on the mind, okay? So you include the mind. Now you've got a bigger network of everything that's interdependent and the mind it's dependent on, right? Now the question is, okay, how about that network? What is it dependent on? Okay, either, you know, you keep on going, in which case you get a kind of non-foundationalism, or you say, at some point in time you say, no, that's it. You've included everything that is in the world. It's all interdependent. Then you have something such that the interdependent of that doesn't depend on anything outside because there is nothing outside. Yeah? So you've got, you've got basically two, two directions in which this can go. 
uh, if you go into the direction that you, that you find further and further levels of stuff that depends on, you don't end up with Indra's net, you end up with a non-foundationalist interpretation. If you have a say that there is a, there's a uh, place where it bottoms out, then you end up with a system uh, in which that web of interconnected things uh, is inter exists intrinsically interdependent. Huh? I do not see why the interest net can, cannot be compatible with anti-foundationalism. Oh, it can be it can be it can be uh, uh, compatible, but then it's not inter interest net anymore. Then it's something else. Because that's what the theory. I mean, that, that's the way the theory is set up, right? I mean, is it, I mean, the, the question is not the about. Mind can also huh? depend on, it can be also part of the of the global global net, interest net, right? Right. Well, if nothing, if if okay, look. I mean, there are two two there are two two options here. Either uh, there isn't anything in the net that depends on anything outside of the net, right? Then you've got a closed system, yeah? and then the question is. What is the existential status of the interdependence of everything in, the, in that net? Yeah? And um, if it doesn't depend on anything else, then it is intrinsically interdependent. So the fact of independence, interdependence is independent, as you say? Yes. But isn't it dependent on the existence of the, the net itself? Well, it depends on whether it's part of the net or so, not. For example, I say this, the, the, the property or something, the property of interdependence of this pen depends on the cap and the mm -hmm. ink or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. But without the pen, there's no such thing as inter interdependence. So the interdependence itself is not, it's not in independent. No, inter interdependence depends on all the things that are interdependent. Yeah. Yes. So I don't, I don't see why they would commit to the, the, the theory that interdependence itself is independent. Because there w the, at, at some point in time, you reach a level where you've included everything in the net. Yes. Uh, are you making me signs that we should have stopped now? Well, I unfortunately have to leave okay. because other people have other commitments. Okay, sure. I think then we should probably, yeah, we leave people. Okay, well, thank you all for coming. This is the perfect moment in which to thank. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you.